All right, well, we continue today in our spring teaching series that we're calling the Gospel-Centered Marriage. And so what we're going to do for the first half of the message is we're going to be kind of bouncing around in the book of Genesis. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip to to Genesis, and uh, we'll be there in the first few chapters for a little while. We'll be doing doing some bouncing around. Typically what we like to do as a church is is work through uh, books of the Bible or big chunks of Scripture Uh, But today we're going to be doing a lot of bouncing, and uh, I think that's okay as well because we believe the the Bible is authoritative and and it has a lot to say on this particular topic we're looking at. Uh, And so go ahead and flip there, and we will land there momentarily. Uh, Let me say this, that uh, as we have studied and prepared and put together the content for this sermon series, we are sharing with you uh, biblical truth from the Scripture and uh, we're, we're sharing with you what we really believe is God's word for you. And much of the interpretation and the understanding that we have on these particular matters come from some really trusted theologians and some trusted uh, pastors. And, and they have written some great books that we'd like to draw your attention to. And so if you go to our website, if you'd like to maybe do a little more study, if you go to our website... Uh, under resources, there's a, a section that says recommended readings, and then you can go on there, and there's all kinds of books on various topics, but we also have topics pertaining to marriage and family, and just some really insightful content for you there, and so we just want to uh, encourage you to go and, and to check that out. Now, today we enter into our last half of this teaching series. So far, we've started by laying the foundation that is the gospel, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus is really foundational to marriage. Then we spent two weeks in the biblical wife, two weeks in the biblical husband, and today we begin three weeks uh, looking at intimacy. Now, let's not assume that we know exactly uh, what we're talking about when we say intimacy. Intimacy is not simply sex. We're talking about intimacy that is relational, that is physical, and that is spiritual. And so this week, particularly, we focus in on relational intimacy. And here's where we need to start. Uh, What in the world are we talking about when we say uh, intimacy? Here's what we're talking about. We're talking about being close with your spouse. That is being open with him or her, being vulnerable with them, being free with them. Uh, I've heard it said this way, we put it on the screen, that intimacy is into me, see. That you are to, to see into me. I want you to see into me. I want you to, to know me as much as humanly possible. The person who knows us the, the best is the Lord. But as much as humanly possible, I want you, I invite you to see into me. I, I love that I, I know that my wife knows me. I mean, she really knows me, and I, and I really know her. We know each other's stories just thoroughly. We know the background well. We know the, the deeper parts of each other's hearts. We know what makes each other tick, and, and so it, it creates great ease when it comes to, to carrying on conversations and to talking about things that are deep and important to us, because we don't have to, every time we speak, fill in all the, the backstory, because Uh, we speak and share and introduce things that we're thinking through and struggling with and excited about even, uh, running it through uh, the, the, the history, the, the framework, the struggles, the joys of our hearts, and those things kind of uh, filter our lives through those things. And so we're able just to talk openly and, and freely. We know how each other thinks, and, and that's uh, just really great because sometimes she'll know what I'm thinking before I even say anything. And so sometimes she'll say, Josh, I know what you're thinking. 
Don't let your mind go there. And that's helpful for me. We know what makes each other laugh. Uh, we know each other's sin struggles really well, and so we can help each other in that. She knows what, what uh, situations and circumstances in my life will trigger insecurities in me, and so she'll say, Josh, no, don't let yourself go there, or she'll help me by redirecting me with a skillful expertise on Josh Wyatt. And, and she's able to do this because no one knows me like my wife Becky knows me. We know each other intimately, and we're really created for this. Just to, to set uh, some foundation as we get into intimacy here, we are created for closeness, and you've got to know that. that that's so important. Uh, several times throughout this series, we've been going back to the, the creation account, and we need to do that again this morning to set some things up. And so look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Here's what the creation account records. God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So we as, as humans are made in the image and the likeness of God, that God is one, but God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity, hence the us and the are in that statement, that we have this God who is eternal, eternity past and eternity future, and uh, triune. And so he's lived in this perfect harmony and perfect relationship, perfect intimacy within himself as a triune God from eternity past. And we as his creation are made in that image and in that likeness, that we are made like him for closeness, that we are relational beings. But then in, in Genesis chapter 2, we get a, a closer, more detailed look into the creation account of, of mankind. And we see that God makes everything, and he makes Adam, and he says as he's making everything that, that this is good, all of his creation is good, but he says there is one thing that is not good, and the thing that is not good, Genesis two eighteen, he says it is not good that man should be alone. So everything is good, but the one thing that is not good is that man should be alone. And so, what does God do to solve this problem? He makes a helper for him. He makes Eve the woman. Now, let me just kind of, as a sidebar, just address a really uh, what I believe is an important issue, and that is that. Not all people will marry, but does that mean that if, if you're not going to marry, that you're going to live in this perpetual state of not good? I mean, it says it's not good for man to be alone. So are you going to live in this perpetual state of not good? No, you're not going to live in that state of not good. Uh, and we need to understand that all human relationship has come from this particular relationship that God created to address the fact that it is not good for man to be alone. And so because Adam and Eve were brought together, they have family and children and children and children. So all human relationship is here because of this particular relationship. And so, yes, it's not good for man to be alone, but even if you don't marry, you are not uh, alone. You have human relationship. We are created for closeness. And so as, as people who are created as relational beings in the image of God, uh, he makes for Adam this helper. He makes Eve, and they live in this perfect unity uh, together. And in Genesis chapter 2, when we get just a closer look at the creation of Eve, we see that God makes Eve out of one of the ribs of Adam. And, and now we know that God could have just made Eve the way he made Adam. He could have made Eve by speaking Eve into existence as he did all the other creation but what he chooses to do, and very poetically, as we've pointed out all along the way, is he chose to make Eve out of a rib, out of Adam's side. Uh, 
Gary uh, Rakusi, uh, whose book we use uh, frequently here for premarital counseling at the church, here's what he says. We'll give you this quote. This is, this is good. He says this. He says, men and women have an inerrant, God-given call and desire to regularly fit back into one another's lives, living in intimate companionship and fellowship with one another. That we were created for closeness, and even that picture of how uh, we were created shows us that we are called and have this innate desire to fit back into one another's life like a, like a puzzle, and that we want to be known and we want to know intimately. We need to have this regularly. This is a, a part of who you are. You are made for this. I am made for this. This is God's perfect, beautiful design. And so we have that set up, the first couple of chapters of Genesis. And then chapter 3, there is sin. There is sin. And in this chapter, as sin enters into the world, into humanity, we see that it starts to just break, destroy, kill intimacy. Remember Genesis chapter 2, 28, if you want to look there at the very end of the chapter. Adam and Eve are together, and it reads, And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So they're naked and they're not ashamed. And this is such a, a strong picture of just the perfect intimacy that they have with one another, that they had nothing to hide, they are completely bare before one another, and their intimacy is just completely unhindered with each other. But then chapter 3, when sin enters into the world, what is the first thing that they do? Chapter 3, verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And so when enter, uh, sin enters into the scene, they move from being unashamed to, for the first time, feeling shame and feeling the need to, to cover themselves. They start to hide themselves. And it's, it's clear in the text that they're hiding themselves from God, but we also need to understand that they are also hiding themselves from each other. That these fig leaves that they sew together speak to far more than just their modesty. It, it really also speaks to self-consciousness. It speaks to fear. It speaks to pride. It speaks to all those things that really begin to kill our intimacy. And maybe you've even seen that in your own life. Now, all along the way throughout this series, we've been seeing that the gospel must be at the heart of our marriage. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, has to be at the heart of our marriage. And now here's where the gospel really comes into the picture here. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. I love this. God covers their shame. Here's what it says. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. I love this. God doesn't want for them shame. He concerns himself with with clothing their, their shame. And so rather than letting them continue to cover themselves with fig leaves, which will wither and they'll be exposed again, what does God do? He makes for them more permanent clothing by giving them garments of of skin, garments of, of animal skin. And this is the first time, as we see in Scripture, that an animal had to die. It's this prophetic look at the death of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world and the shame of the world. And so what can we kind of take away from this, this narrative here? We can take away this, that God doesn't want us, his creation, to be bogged down with, with shame. He could have said, listen, yep, you're right. Shame on you. You should feel it. You should sense it. But instead, he concerns himself with, I want to cover your shame, and I want to cover it with something more permanent. I will give you skin for us. I will give you 
Jesus. I don't want you to live in this perpetual state of self-consciousness. I want your marriage to not be you constantly saying, what do they think about me? I'm I'm worried that they might leave me because they don't like the way I behave this time around. Instead, he wants you to live in freedom and, and intimacy with him and with other people. And that happens because of Jesus. And the greatest human intimacy should be husband and wife. And we've sinned, we have sinned, but God doesn't want our sin to hinder us from the most enjoyable part of his master plan of of creation, and that is intimacy with uh, another person. And that's why it's comforting for my wife to know that I love her like Jesus, that I love her like Jesus, Ephesians chapter 5. We are to love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And you and I are both going to need to constantly remind our spouse of that. I love you like Jesus, that you are free from insecurity around me. You're, you're free from shame around me. You need to know that I love you and I will always love you no matter what. My promise, my covenant, and, and before God and before the witnesses is this, that I'm with you till death do us part. And you need to feel no shame around me. I want my wife to, to regularly see and experience and sense and feel my, my faith in Christ. Because as she does, she can be increasingly assured that, hey, I can be open around him. And I can be honest around him. And I can be vulnerable around him because he loves me regardless. He loves me like Jesus. I'll say it this way. That sin kills intimacy, but Jesus catalyzes intimacy. He catalyzes intimacy. And so that's why we keep insisting One of the best things that you can do for your marriage is draw near to Jesus. So when my wife walks in the room and I'm sitting there with my Bible open, it should trigger something in her heart and her mind that he's not buying me flowers right now. But here's what he is doing. He's drawing near to Jesus. And as he sees Jesus and how Jesus loves his people, he's going to love me the same way. And so she can be comforted as she sees my faith, sees me live out my faith, as she sees me lead my family and coming to church and being a part of a vibrant faith community, as she sees me read my Bible with my children and with her, as she sees me act upon my convictions from the Scripture. For her, this is something that catalyzes our intimacy. Now, before we get into physical intimacy, which we will touch on and and really get into next week, and so come back, Uh, We need to talk about something that must happen long before the bedroom, and that is relational intimacy. And we can and should have both hand in hand. And so listen to how how, uh, the wife of Solomon says it. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 16. I love how she puts it. She says this. She says, this is my beloved, and this is my friend. This is my beloved, and this is my friend friend. And the great, greatest way I think of saying relational intimacy is saying friendship, is, is friendship. That they are lovers, they are beloved, and they are friend. Your, your, your spouse should be your closest friend. Can you say that for those of us who are, are married? That relational intimacy is friendship. It's, it's friendship. And Maybe you have a skewed view of friendship. I think a lot of us do because it's just such a, an abused word in our, our culture today. You can have a thousand friends on Facebook but really only have a, a few real friends. 
I always say, I think Twitter has it right. Facebook has it wrong. Twitter calls them followers, right? That's what Facebook people are. They're not friends, they're followers. They're people that subscribe to know the details of your life. But they don't really know you, and they're really not obligated to give anything back to you, except maybe a click a button and say, I like that, right? So they're, they're followers. Well, real friendship is what we've been talking about all along this morning. It's, it's intimacy. It's into me. See, I want you to see me. I want you to, to be open with me and I with you. I want to be vulnerable with you and you with me. I want to be free. I want you to be free, to be loved and, and, and to love. And so the very first friendship, as we see in the scriptures, is the friendship of a husband and a wife who are naked and unashamed. So we see here in Song of Solomon that they are lovers and they are friends. And that's what we want for all of our marriages, that we are to be not just friends but lovers, not just lovers but friends. We are lovers and friends. For my honeymoon, Becky and I went to Aruba. And I'll never forget on the last night of our trip in Aruba, we had dinner at this really nice restaurant together. And I remember the hostess sat us down at this great table, the balcony kind of overlooking the the water, and there was only two couples in this balcony, and it was Becky and I, and then this couple that was, you know, probably I'd say in their their fifties, so they're a little further along in their marriage. And uh, Becky and I couldn't help but notice this was just blaringly obvious that throughout the entire dinner, these two didn't speak hardly a word to each other. And so for us, this is the last night of our honeymoon, and this was incredibly depressing. And we had so much to talk about. We're overlooking the water. It's beautiful. It's incredible. And we're looking at, hopefully, not this you know, prophetic image of who we're going to be in, in uh, 25 years. And here we are kicking off our life together. We're talking. We're reminiscing about all the fun adventures of our, of our honeymoon. We couldn't keep our hands off each other. She couldn't keep her hands off of me. Uh, and here they are, in contrast, and they're not even saying a word to each other. They're not even looking at each other. I remember, the, I just picture the wife, I mean, I'll never get the image out of my head of her with this big old margarita and just kind of looking off in his, wouldn't even look at him, wouldn't even hold his hand. And that night, I remember Becky and I just vowed, that will not be us. That will not be us. But, it could be us, couldn't it? And it could be any one of, of us in this room because we're sinful and sin creeps in and sin kills intimacy and it pushes us apart. And unless we're very proactive here, we just, because of the nature of sin, we just will naturally drift apart. And think with me about some of just the factors that lead to to drift in in marriages. Um, And these factors aren't sin in and of themselves, but there's something that, that the enemy gladly uses to help us drift and drift faster and further apart. Uh, One of them is babies. Obviously not sin. Babies are a gift from God. Children are a gift uh, from the Lord. But man, when they enter into your marriage, they are an emotional and physical drain on uh, her for sure and him as well. First time in your life, you're not getting a solid 10 hours of sleep every night. It's, It's pretty tough. And listen, don't forget that they're going to be in your home 18 to 22 years, hopefully. <laughs> but you're going to be married, hopefully, for a lot longer than that. So a lot of people say, pause on the marriage for these 18 to 22 years. We focus only on our kids, and it seems so noble. But if you don't have a friendship in your marriage, man, it's not good when they're gone. I'll never forget my freshman year of college. 
at a Christian college, all these kids with Christian families, raised in Christian homes. And no lie, at the end of my freshman year of college, it was so crazy. A lot of my friends, like a good handful of my friends, started to say, man, parents just told me they're getting a divorce. What? Over and a handful of times. Why? Because they're Christians. And we do love the Lord, but they're not nurturing a friendship. And so when their child is finally out of the house, that thing that really anchored their marriage and the, the only thing they could really talk about and the only thing they really invested themselves in together was their children and they're gone. And now they're strangers living in a home together. So I'm really convinced that one of the most uh, important investments in your marriage is having a, a consistent date night. I'm serious about that. I'm not saying go and, and do these incredible trips all the time and just you know, live this in the lap of luxury and go to all these great restaurants. I'm just saying, listen, be committed to going on a date with your spouse regularly and put it on the calendar. We all have these good intentions. That's a great idea, but we don't put it on the calendar and it doesn't happen. And we need to do that regularly. God's given us a, a few people in our lives that regularly help us with our kids so that we can go because we can't afford to pay a babysitter and then pay for parking downtown and then, you know, a, a nice restaurant. And it's just expensive. You know, it's like $150 every time we go on a date. You can't do that. But if you um, commit to it and get creative, you can get time together. And it's really, really important because when you have children, it can, can be a, a tool to to cause you to, to drift and to not spend time together and to talk about things other than kids. And that's the easiest thing for us to talk about. We could sit there at Cheesecake Factory and only talk about our kids. We have to really force ourselves to talk about other things. Another factor that leads to, to drift I've seen commonly in marriage, and I won't touch on them all, but just a few common things is work. Work is a big, big thing that uh, gets used to cause drift. We are to work so that we can live and not just live for our work. And so many of us live for our work. We should be passionate about whatever it is that we do. You should go online and listen to our series that we call God at Work. And, and it talks about how you can live a, a life of your work being more than just something you do to pay the bills. It's something that you really invest your life in. God wants that. But listen, that can't be it for you. Uh, my, my friend recently was sharing... Uh, about some research that he had been doing about Boston in particular. And what he was doing is he was looking at Boston and other major influential cities in the United States and what those cities as uh, unique cities really value and, and, and where these people who live in these cities will find their worth. And so, for example, uh, he, he noticed it through a lot of his research that L.A. and a couple of other major California cities, um, they valued how they played. Now, here's what I mean by that. Uh, you work hard and you play hard. And so they'll come into work on Monday, they talk about all the exciting things they did at work. I was surfing this weekend, and I, this weekend I, I ate at this really great restaurant. I went to this great event. And so they find their value and they find their worth And what do you do with your life? And how do you play? What does that look like for you? I got a great sports car. I have this. And that's a place where they find uh, their worth. New York City, my friend found, was power. And so people find their value and their worth in how much property you own or how much power uh, you have on your block, in your building, in your uh, organization. And so people's value is wrapped up in how much power they can, can flex before other people. In Boston, here's what he found. 
people find their value and their worth in their busyness. In their busyness. It's crazy, huh? And so, for most Bostonians, how busy we are speaks to how valuable we are. I work 60 hours a week. I'm getting a degree on the side. Uh, I'm involved in these community organizations. I play in this uh, urban sports league. How's your marriage and your family? Terrible. But um, I'm so busy. You ever notice in in conversations, um, people like to talk about how busy they are? You ever seen this? It's like the first, one of the first things that comes up. How you been? Well, uh, I'm, I'm so busy. What we're trying to say is this. I'm so important. I'm so valuable. People need me. This is like every conversation I have with pastors. How's it going? Oh, I'm just so busy. I'm so bogged down. People need me. Oh, they just need me. Man, you are so valuable, aren't you? And that's what we're trying to say. If we were to be honest, what if we, what if we said it this way? What if we spun it this way? Hey, how you been, man? Oh, I'm, I'm so busy because my priorities are misguided, and I'm in sin because I don't know how to rest like God commanded me to, uh, because I don't have faith that God can run the world without me, because uh, my, my marriage and children, they're, they're hurting because they don't know me, and uh, I'm in sin, and I'm gone all the time. How are you? <laughs> what if we spun it that way, and we're just completely honest? Listen, we need in our marriages and in our families to instill in them healthy priorities so that your work doesn't jeopardize your marriage. Your work doesn't jeopardize your marriage. And this is a challenging one to really work around because it seems oftentimes like it's the one thing that we can't change. I can't change how many hours my boss makes me work. I can't change that I have this deadline for this degree that I'm pursuing. But maybe you can. Maybe you can. You pray about it and get creative and watch what God does. Maybe you're not trapped in this career that maybe you shouldn't even be in because it's, it's, it's a noble career and it's a career that you've been striving for, but is it going to kill your family? Is it going to kill your marriage? We have to think about these things and, and do something now rather than later and you're further and further and further and further in. One more common thing that I see often that causes leads to marital drift is, is technology, TV, smartphone, laptop, iPad. We've got to put these things down and talk. We are in a whole new generation where this stuff is before us all the time and whereas I'm so busy because I had to do this, this, and this, today it's I'm so busy and I'm in that mix of busyness is checking Facebook and tweeting about drinking coffee and just goofy things all the time. Like, take all of that stuff out and be married. That would be a good idea. And, man, I, I was at this restaurant on a date night with my wife, and um, there was this table. We were at Atlantic Fish Company downtown. It was really a great night, and... I remember sitting beside this other table. I guess that's all we do on our date nights. We don't talk either. We just stare at other people. But <laughs> these, ten, these 10 or so people sitting at this table, and I couldn't help but notice they're not talking either. <laughs> they're not looking in the distance, but they're doing this. I mean, like, they're all dressed up, ready for a night out in the town, and they're just on their phones, like, the whole night. It was insane. Put them down and build a relationship. I'm so thankful that my wife addressed this. Uh, very gentle and lovingly in me a few years back, and I was re- I'm really, really thankful for it. 
Uh, she said, Josh, I don't know what you're doing on your laptop. This is when I first you know, started getting a laptop instead of a, a desktop, which can be dangerous for your marriage. I don't know what you're doing on your laptop in the living room while the family and kids are all running around, but an open laptop tells me and tells the kids that you don't want to talk to us and that there's something more important. And I probably wasn't doing anything, just like looking up music or whatever. And so I had to develop this practice, and I've, I've started to develop it, that I, I, I try to put my laptop and my computer in another room rather than the living room. Because if it's in the living room, I, my, my cell phone is right there as well. If it's, if it's in that room with me, I just can't help it. Well, got to check something, got to do something. Because, you know, it's like it's surgically attached to your hand, your, your smartphone. If you put it in another room, it's not on your mind all the time. You go to reach for it. No, I'm not going to get up. I'm too lazy. And you spend time with your family. You talk to your wife. You talk to your, your kids. I'm glad that she did that. And so let's think about that. Be very practical about that. One thing we do is our, our TV, we put it in a, a case that we can close up. So we're not going to probably ever have a big flat screen TV because you can't put it in this big box that you close up and forget that it's in the room. That's just something we do so that we can actually talk with each other. We can go on and on about other factors that lead to drift, but these are just some, some predominant ones that I've seen in, in marriage and in the people that I've interacted with. Now, I want to kind of finish the tail end of this today by, by looking at how we can develop uh, relational intimacy in, in marriage. And, and I want to look at two really powerful words uh, for developing relational intimacy, uh, a strong friendship in marriage. And that, that is this. I want to look at honesty and humility. Honesty and humility. And these are two words that you really need to cling to and hone in on. Let's think about honesty for a minute. Now, when we hear honesty in marriage, here's what a lot of us think about immediately. We think about not lying. If I'm honest, I don't lie to her or to, to him. But listen, if you haven't been honest with her or him about something, you should definitely bring that to the light. But here's, the, I think, the most common issue. It's not lying. It's failure to disclose. Failure to disclose. What you're doing is you're, you're wrapping fig leaves around your life. And God wants you to be open and, and unashamed with each other and, and really open yourself up to them. What we're talking about is just being completely open in your communication and disclosing yourself to your, your spouse. Your, your spouse should never have to question your, your willingness to open yourself up. Are they telling me everything? Are they open with me? Is that really how he's feeling? Is that really how she's feeling? There should be no doubt in their heart. We need to open our, ourselves up and we need to let our spouse know our fears. We need to let them know our thoughts. We need to let them know our, our struggles, our, our sin issues, our joys, our successes. And we often say, oh, he's just quiet. Or, oh, she's just quiet. No. He's being prideful and dishonest. Proverbs 18.1, listen to what it says. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. And so isolating yourself is not, oh, just being quiet. It's you're seeking your own desire and you're making yourself comfortable because you don't like to talk. It's kind of hard for you. And it's actually selfish and self-centered. Failure to, to open up in your communication with your spouse is, is self-isolation and it's independence 
from him or her, and it's pride. And men, it's often a little more challenging for, for us to share a whole lot because it's just kind of how we, we're wired. Ladies get together and they talk, and men get together and they do something, right? We were talking this morning about uh, the first marriage uh, at the church was uh, Peter and Sarah Scow. It was our first church wedding. It was kind of an exciting day, and I did the wedding. And uh, a few nights before, we had a, you know, a bachelor party for Peter, Christian one. And, uh, <laughs> and we had a, uh, they had a bachelorette party for, for Sarah. And uh, some of us guys went out with Peter, and the ladies went out with Sarah. And I remember, you know, us guys, we went together. We, we went and did something. We went and we watched a game together. <laughs> We watched hockey together, watched the Bruins play. What do the girls do? They talked. <laughs> and, and so when she comes back, what did you do? We watched the game. <laughs> what did you do? You talked. Oh. See how we're different. We're just, we're, we're, we're wired differently. And so for us guys to open up and to talk, it's a little more challenging, generally speaking. But we need to be humble and, and honest and open ourselves up and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. It's not maybe comfortable for, for every man just to open up and to talk about things like that, but it's important. Here's how it's played out in, in, in my marriage, and it's, it's gone both ways for both Becky and for, for myself. Maybe there's been something, and this probably happened once or twice uh, between the both of us. There's something that's bothered us, and there's something that, uh, maybe it's something one of the other said or the way they're acting or something they, they, they failed to do. And we failed to be open about it and honest about it. We just didn't say anything about it. We didn't talk about it. And so months can go by. Sometimes even years can go by. We don't talk about it until it finally just starts boiling and then it boils over and then you have to say something, but it's a big deal and it's hot at that point, right? And it wouldn't have been if we just shared about it when it started to come up in the, the early stages. We've got to communicate about things and be honest about things. It's not just being quiet and feel, I don't want to talk about it. No, it's, it's prideful and it's um, being dishonest. And we've got to be discerning uh, about how we can draw things out of our spouse. If you're starting to see things that are bothering him or her, you've got to be discerning. How can I get them to, to talk rather than just saying, tell me! <laughs> but how can I actually ask the right questions and be discerning there? Now, all of that in mind, honesty, I'll say this, that this isn't giving all of us this license to just blurt out how we feel all the time. That's not what we're trying to do. And this is the popular idea today, that to be honest and to share how you feel all the time. Always tell people how you feel. And we have to still be cautious to, to run our feelings through a filter of grace so that we can say everything in a way that it's seasoned with salt and it's gracious. It doesn't invalidate your feelings. That is what you're feeling. However, you don't have to speak everything that's on your mind. And in fact, if you speak everything that's on your mind, it's not a good thing. Amen to that? Imagine if you spoke everything that was on your mind every single time. We do need to be honest. We need to share our lives and share our feelings, share everything, our fear, our sin, our struggles, our anxiety, our joys, our jokes, laughter with him or her, successes, Open up and develop a friendship. Be honest. And it's going to be tougher for some than others. And then finally is, is humility. This is so huge. That friendship and marriage really demands 
humility. Because your pride is going to cause you to want to isolate. It's going to want to cause you to self-protect or self-exalt and and one-up yourself. But remember Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Here's what he says. He says, Paul says this. He says, let uh, each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. And then he goes on and says, we do that because that's what Jesus did. Don't just look to your own interest, but look also to the interest of others. Are you, are you good at concerning yourself with the interests of someone else? Well, a lot of us aren't, I would imagine. Are you good at concerning yourself with what other people are interested in? Husbands, you come home and you only want to talk about your project at work or this guy at work who's getting under your skin? Or do you say, let's talk about your day and what's been going on with you? How have the kids been? What's going on? Wives, do you only want to talk about, hey, you're home. Here's what you need to do in the house. Here's what my day looked like. I'm stressed out. Take the kids. Do you just want to do that? Or do you want to ask him how his day has been and learn about the things that are weighing on, on his shoulders, looking out for the interests of others? We looked at Proverbs 18.1 just a minute ago under honesty. Look at Proverbs 18.2 as it goes on. It says this. It says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. So, humbly seek to understand your spouse. Sounds like 1 Peter 3, as we've been talking about, that live with her in an understanding way. You want to be humble and and say, I don't get it. I want to understand you. I don't want to make it all about me. I want to make it about you as well, and I want to learn about you, and I want to understand you. I want to figure out what you're interested in, what excites you, what's going on in your heart. What's going on in your life? And I want to I do that. I want to be a good friend. You know what that means uh, for me? It means I'm going to have to watch a chick flick every now and again. Because <laughs> I don't understand that. And uh, I don't particularly want to. My wife says, now, Josh, every now and again, I just want a good cry. You want to cry? <laughs> I don't get that at all. <laughs> She's like, every, girls just need a good cry. And we just got to get it out of our system. I'm like, all right. Let's watch the notebook. Here we go. And we do it. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding. And I don't want to be a fool, so I try to understand this. And I watch it. And she does the same thing, similar for me. Uh, when we were in college, we first started dating. I was big into running. And uh, my wife, who hates running, I didn't know that then, but now I do, and I look back and I think it's hysterical, put on her running clothes, and she went on a nice, romantic, sweaty run with me. <laughs> She hates running. I love baseball. One of the most enjoyable times we had together, at least from my perspective, was when we went to a Red Sox game. And then she said, you know, I love this. We should do this more often. She had a a really good time. Humbly concerning yourself with the interest of others. It requires humility. And we go so much deeper. These are kind of comical things. But are are you humble and saying, man, I want to develop a relationship with you. I want to be your best friend. And I want to make it not just about me and about me getting out what, out of this what I can get, but how can I give and how can I be a friend? How can I, how can I be a friend? You know, I, I've seen a lot of churches in my life. Uh, in college, uh, in all four years, I'd go to two to three churches a month up and down the East Coast, talking at churches and doing different things. And man, I saw a lot of churches. And the ones that i you know, get to sit down and have a lot of time with and really talk about things. You know what I constantly get from people in churches? People say, man, 
I don't have any friends here. Nobody's, nobody's reaching out to me. Nobody's connecting with me. Nobody's inviting me over to their house. It's just not happening. You know what I get to say back to them? Oh, have, have you invited anybody to your house? Have you sought to connect with somebody else? It's easy to say, well, you know, I don't have any friends, but you've got to be friendly. And that's how it, how it applies into our marriage is that we have to be friends and be friendly and not just seek to, to get out of it what we need. And it's so common, so common. When I worked in youth ministry, it was, oh, this youth group's all about cliques. I hear that all the time. You've got to be friendly in order to get a friend. You need to do that in your marriage. Look, not just for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. And that's how you gain a friendship in marriage, is not to go home today and say, See all these areas? He nailed you, didn't he? You haven't been friendly. You haven't been a good friend to me. But say, how can I be a friend? How can I love? How can I serve? How can I give? Why do we do this? Because the gospel is at the center of our marriage, and we want to love like Jesus loved. We want to be a friend like Jesus is a friend. that He loved humbly. He loved sacrificially. He loved selflessly to the point that he gave of his life on a, on a cross. And he says in John, he says, greater love has no one than this, and that he would lay down his life for his friends. He would lay down his life for his friends. He said, I, Jesus, am a friend who loves because I lay down my life for you. How can we lay down our life for our marriages? How can we sacrificially, humbly, and honestly love in our relationships that we have. Be a friend to her. Be a friend to him. Be like Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Lord, thank you for our time. God, I pray that it begins to bear fruit, Lord, that our church would be a church of people who are in these deep, intimate marriages, Lord that they would be best friends, that they would love each other well and give sacrificially and in time that you would develop in them these beautiful, beautiful friendships. And God, I know that there are people who are hurting and don't have that at home. And they want that today. They want that tomorrow. God, give them perseverance. Give them stamina to pursue and to give and to serve as you in time soften the heart of their spouse so that they could then become the friend for them that they also need. In the meantime, Lord, would you be their friend who sticks closer than a brother? That you would love them and serve them and support them as you're developing the marriage that they need, one that will glorify you. God, we love you so much. And we thank you for the example of Jesus who loves us humbly and loves us honestly and loves us sacrificially. God, we just pray that you continue to do your work in us. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.